this this has an extreme outworking insofar as saying that there is no Jew today, like that the Jews in Israel aren't even biblical Jews. There's no such thing as national Israel, um, that it's been done away with. Um, that is one of the more preposterous things I have seen on on the internet. Um, yeah. and I, I, I made I said this yesterday. I said I know reason is where uh, Facebook is where reason goes to die, but even for Facebook, that's just preposterous. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. One of the main reasons I started the church and state ministry is because of low information Christians. And without being patronising or insulting, um, it's, a, it's a fact and a reality that leads to many Christians disengaging from politics altogether. Uh, and that's a result of a century of, or more of uh, abundant religious liberty in this nation so that Christians didn't have to think about uh, things that were low impact on them. And, and yet uh, we saw through COVID that many Christians um, actually had forgotten uh, a lot of the really important church history uh, about fighting tyranny and being involved in asserting justice in the nation. Uh, and one of the things that is also a problem in is low information on all areas of doctrine. Uh, and that's something that we should um, be part of the solution too. Uh, now, one of the very hot political, um, contentious, debated issues in the world is Israel and the place of the Jew in our world. Anti-Semitism was something uh, the world roundly decided was evil and inappropriate and needed a solution to at the end of World War II. But anti-Semitism has had a deep place in church history. And that grieves me, and I know it grieves lots of Messianic Jews, Jews who have come to a full uh, salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, and it also grieves Jesus, uh, the King of the Jews. And he and I, uh, we want to see uh, a better information, a better understanding of exactly what the Bible says. And ultimately, if I'm wrong, I like to be corrected by scripture, by sincere people who have my um, access of truth uh, to be their highest goal and priority. So that's what we're going to tackle today. We're gonna to tackle the topic of Israel. And we're going to try and solve the problem of anti-Semitism in the church. Now, I'm not so naive as to think the next 30 to 60 minutes will solve that problem, but hopefully we can contribute to a better information uh, amongst you viewing and listening to this recording. Um, one of the things that we may achieve is that, and we, we certainly hope to achieve, I think, is um, helping the viewers and listeners who are already agreeing with God 
to better um, better dismiss the vain arguments and the empty arguments and the unscriptural arguments that you're going to see uh, and you probably already have seen proliferating the internet. I hope to do a lot of sessions uh, and recordings over coming weeks um, and may even spend the rest of the year on this topic uh, because, and I'll always keep it interesting and high caliber, we won't um, be, be just waffling. But um, the, the point is there's so many facets and aspects to this. There's so much misinformation and slander and libel uh, and unvarnished Jew hatred um, in the world, in the internet, and in the church, even the right-wing conservative Christians. And that saddens me to say that. Uh, and that leads me to also say um, that I don't doubt these people's Christianity, many of them. Um, they're very sincere, very honest, very intellectual, um, but wrong. And so we want to explore these things together um, because it just could be that we're wrong. So we always have to be open to um, understanding and examining the best arguments against the positions that we're in, as well as rehearsing and training the best arguments for the position we're in. So joining me today is my brother, um, Joshua Pello who I regard to be one of the best prophecy experts in Australia. Um, and he holds an annual conference as well as tours of the nation of Israel um, when not interrupted by conflict and uh, policy pandemics. Um, so uh, he is somebody who, in a nation that doesn't have a lot of experts, it's, uh, it's a bit like the Human Rights Law Alliance who say they're the preeminent human rights, uh, Christian rights law clinic in Australia. Well, they're the only one in Australia. So uh, with all due respect, um, there's not a lot of people in this field in, in this nation, uh, but uh, he's somebody who's devoted a lot of time and effort into studying this. So Josh, welcome to the Church and State Show. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Sorry, Josh is the senior pastor of Kingdom Hope Church in Bethania, which is in Logan City, Queensland, uh, the Southern Hemisphere promised land. That's right, yeah. <laughs> what have you seen which prompted you to say, let's interrupt the plan uh, for, for preaching over, through topics and, um, and get to this topic right now? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Obviously, once uh, as a as, as a local shepherd, you know, um, my main my main focus is always to um, making sure that we process things healthily as a local faith community. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in hearing God as a community. Um, even though you know, as a Pentecostal church, which we are, we do believe in ap apostolic leadership. We also, um, you know, we love the the faith community that you know we hear God together, we we move together, and we process the world around us together. This is everywhere. It's the world's it's the world's focus is on Israel right now, and so as a congregation, I thought it was pertinent that we actually journey this together. Let's let's discuss this. Let's not yep. let's not just pretend that that uh, that the world is about to. Uh, be set on fire and we're just business as usual focused on our individual Christian lives in uh, Homeview Australia. Um, let's actually, you know, process this and, and see how we can, through biblical reasoning and also th through good theological reasoning, uh, see where God is at in this and, and, and maybe what our uh, Christian response should be to this. And um, so I thought it'd be pertinent yeah, to start a discussion on that yesterday. But second of all, because of a lot of what you said in the in the opening as well, a lot of the comments I'm seeing on Facebook is either you know misinformation, uh, poor theological reasoning, 
um, you know, assumptions being made. And I thought, you know what, I, I don't want my congregation feeding on that or grabbing onto that. And, and, and second of all, um, I certainly don't want Christians that are stuck in that echo chamber through various means um, to not uh, get some good, uh, solid biblical basis for how we should be processing this current season that we're in yeah. and what Israel is, is journeying through together. Now, what's important to understand about this covenant is this is a one-sided covenant. This was not a, a two-sided covenant. There was no responsibility on Abraham's side to see this covenant fulfilled. This was an eternal covenant made by God to Abraham with no responsibility on Abraham to see this covenant fulfilled. He then reiterates this covenant in Genesis 15. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, look, you give me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward the heaven and the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and, he accounted it, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. See how the promise and the covenant is not just descendants, it's the land. The people of Israel and the land of Israel are united. You cannot separate them. They're part of the same eternal covenant in the Abrahamic covenant. And it's then reiterated to Isaac, his son, in Genesis 21 and in Genesis 26, and then reiterated once again to Jacob, Abraham's grandson in Genesis 28. This covenant was reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed through the generations. This is why you see in the Old Testament, sometimes Israel are in the land, occupying the land. Sometimes they are not occupying the land. <clears throat> However, ownership is always, whether they're in the land or not, ownership is always given to, to Israel. Even when they're out of the land, ownership is spoken of in the Old Testament still to Israel and still to God. In Ezekiel 36, God specifically calls it my land. God says, it's my land and I'm gonna bring you back into the land that I gave you. It's my land and I give it to you. I'm gonna bring you back into it. And so there is a specific ownership there, but you see, and I'm gonna fly through these verses and the notes will be available on the app um, midweek. And, and you'll be able to go th more slowly through these verses later on. I just wanna show you the repetitive nature of God drawing his people back to the land. That is always part of God's plan for Israel to be in the land, the land of promise, the land that he gave him. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart, okay? So in other words, God's saying here, the sun, the moon, the stars, if, as long as they exist from, me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease. So if the sun, the moon and the stars fall out of the sky, that's when Israel loses its land. Thus says the Lord, verse 37, if heaven above can be measured, 
and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So there is also another thought, sometimes in Christianity, that once again, because of Israel's disobedience, not only has the land been dispossessed from them, but also they themselves are, as a people, are also no longer God's chosen people. Well, once again, <clears throat> you, you have to come and headbutt the word of God if that's where you stand theologically. Because he's saying, if you can measure heaven, if you can get a tape measure out and actually show me what I've, what I've made, that's the day that I'll cast Israel off from being my people. So the land is eternal. Israel is the eternal people of God. And they have a unique plan. They don't have a side entry. That doesn't mean they've got their own way into salvation. It's still through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, just like it is for us. However, they are God's chosen people. God's chosen people is not isolated to the church. We have been grafted into their chosenness. Bad grammar, good theology. We've been grafted into their plan of salvation that God used them not only to give to them but also to through them be given an invitation to the world. Let's start I think with the the big one um, and that is replacement theology. Sure. Um, define that, explain uh, I guess the best arguments um, explain what the the theory is. I think it's heresy. Mm. Um, explain what the, the best arguments for it are and, and then let's go through the, the scriptures and, and understanding of why replacement heresy is just that. Yeah, it, it has a long tradition, to be honest. It has a, it has a long-standing um, tradition and um, church history is always difficult to navigate because whoever's making the argument always tends to feel like they have church history on their side. Um, history is in the eye of the beholder in many ways, often, particularly when it comes to church history. Um, but to be honest, it, it did actually start to originate in the second century um, AD. So it can go back as far as that. And even, even some of the guys that were starting to head down this line of replacement theology, which, which really is, is more, of a, um, it's more of an insult or a pejorative that came about the people who hold this theology probably prefer the term replenishment or fulfillment theology, but it's more commonly known as replacement theology. But it probably originated around the time of um, Irenaeus, as early as, as him. He's starting to sort of point towards this direction that, um, that the verses that are speaking about Israel are actually now pertaining to the church and the promises that were given to Israel are now fulfilled in the church, which is hence the term fulfillment theology or replenishment theology, or that the vine which is indicated as Israel is now the church, that, that we've been grafted in and the dead fruit branches have been cut off. Um, however, it's, uh, it then gained speed through really a, a reframing of eschatology that was held by the early church fathers and by the disciples of the disciples. Eschatology being the study of the end times. Last things. Gen generally, there's four main topics in, in eschatology is um, heaven, hell, judgment, and last things or, or end times. Yep. They're, they're the four main topics of eschatology. And so heaven, hell, judgment, and the end started to get reframed around about sort of 300 AD. And the reason for that was because the prim primary understanding of, of eschatology before that by the disciples, by Jesus himself, and certainly by the Old Testament writers, and the disciples of the disciples 
was that uh, a lot of eschatology was fulfilled in the Messiah in a second or even in their understanding in the Old Testament was was one coming. Mm. Um, we obviously know in hindsight in 2020 it was one Messiah, two comings, the first and the second. And so we see in the Church of um, Thessalonica and and even, you know, Paul in certain ways, you kind of read his, his writings and you're like, man, you were expecting Jesus to come back at any moment. Um, the disciples were kind of expecting Jesus to come back at the rapture. It was meant to happen any moment. Um, you know, tyranny was meant to be thrown off any moment. By, but by 300 AD, people started going, oh, well, maybe we need to look at this. This is kind of taking a while. Maybe we misunderstood the second coming of Jesus. This is a common mistake. Uh, people reinterpreting what Scripture says mm. through the lens of their experience. Of their experience, sure. Uh, and we do that today, and we've got to be careful not to do that today. One of the criticisms of... Now, um, sorry to use tags, but sometimes it just helps people cut through. I'm a pre-millennialist and, and a dispensationalist, and what that means is we believe that God's grace is has different administrations or dispensations depending on which covenant um, he is So make that really simple for the non-Christians who are watching. So the way that God administered grace through Abraham is different to the way that he administered grace through the Mosaic covenant, which is different to the way that he administered grace through the new covenant through Jesus Christ. The traditional holding of dispensationalism is roughly about seven, but some go down to three, some go more than seven, different dispensations. So that's the way you you read scripture and where you're coming from in, in what we're talking about. Right, and and so one of the criticisms of, of a dispensationalist is that we can take the news headlines and we can implement um, headline exegesis or newspaper exegesis instead of biblical exegesis. But I guess if you go back in history, that's kind of what um, you know, church thinkers like Origen and, um, and, and, and Augustine really did as well because, you know, Augustine's now got a Roman emperor and um, the church is teaching that there's, gonna, there's a soon and coming king that's going to rule the whole world and Augustine's thinking like, well, this isn't really matching up with, uh, with what's happening in the newspaper headlines of my time. And so they started to rethink eschatology and, and like I said, um, Irenaeus kind of did some and, and, and some of his contemporaries had well started doing some thinking around, well, maybe eschatology isn't fulfilled through the nation of Israel and the church. Maybe it's only through the church. And so then it gained speed um, and, 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 or, and Origen and, and Augustine really were a catalyst to that really escalating. Um, and then obviously Augustine wrote The City of God that the millennial reign of Christ is so through the church. Had the Jewish diaspora... Uh, happened by the time of Augustine? Yeah. So they were gone. Israel were gone. Yeah. as a nation was no scattered temple, across the earth. No temple, no Israel. And so they thought, well, the prophecy must be fulfilled some other way. Exactly. But, I mean, when Ezekiel wrote, um, Ezekiel, um, and, you know, Israel pretty, wasn't, pretty much wasn't a nation then either. Mm. You know, so even some of the Old Testament uh, prophets are writing about a, a, a fulfilled national Israel in the land under the rule and reign of a king, um, Jewish king, and, and Israel wasn't a nation. They were pretty much either already in captivity in Babylon, not back in the nation, or still, you know, um, quite scattered across the nations as well. So, so once again, even in three, 300 AD, it's, or 350 AD, it's no different to when the prophets were actually writing it. But 
they really looked at their circumstance and thought, well, yeah, we need to rethink this. And and one of the unintended consequences, the early church fathers, and, yep. and yeah, certainly, uh, once you once you get to that three three to fourth century AD, they really started to run with um, the concepts that the the millennial promises of Israel are expressed through the church, and that Israel has been replaced, hence the term replacement theology, and that they're fulfilled in the church, hence the term fulfillment theology. And so one of the unintended consequences of that um, was that the Jews became the enemies of the church. Now, look, to be fair, Jews started killing Christians before Christians started killing Jews. Like, you know, like Paul was killing Christians um, as a as an unruly sect of Judaism. Yeah, when he was Saul before sure. God gave him a new name, he was a terrorist. Uh, absolutely. Um, however, um, church history is mostly and largely filled with a lot of bloody... Um, murderous intent from the church toward Israel and one of the reasons for that and and this is the unintended um, outcome of replacement theology is that uh, the Jews killed Messiah they're disobedient God's rejected them there is no value to them um, and we're doing God's work if we if we kill them as I, well. I like what you said about that uh, in church yesterday and and that was no I killed Messiah sure it was my sins that crucified him and nailed him. It was, if I'd been the only person on earth, he would have died for me. Well, that, that works both ways. It was my sins that he died for. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't Romans who had the power to put him there. It wasn't Jews who had the power to put him there. Correct. Um, it was every single last living human in human history. Mm. Um, each of us individually are responsible for the need for Messiah. Uh, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Absolutely, yeah. He, he was, he was, he was Lord at all times. He was in full control. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. Nobody was pulling the strings. Mm. Uh, he was in full submission to his father. Um, um, but, however, that's not always been the attitude of the church. No. And so that's where the bloody history has come from. And so some, and even today, and Jews know this history a lot more than Christians do. Yeah. So when Christians are trying to witness to Jews. Hey, come and uh, learn about Jesus, our God. Yeah, they're like, man, your God is the reason why you killed us for centuries. Yeah, that Jesus. That Jesus. Yeah, yeah that Je that Jesus is the reason why for, there was generational genocide from the church towards. And yeah. it, it and it's although we don't want to cover it up, um, we we also don't want to focus and and dwell on it either. Um, insofar as you know, I feel like as we've framed theology over the last two millennia, we have. You know, fix some some errors, but let me give you just a couple of let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, Martin Luther, one of my personal heroes, um, he actually um, did such a great job with the Reformation, and he's a hero, amazing guy. And he and my my only criticism though is that it shouldn't have been a 95 thesis. It probably should have been 96, 97, 98 thesis. Like that, he didn't reform enough. And one of the areas that he didn't reform was eschatology, and and we see even in his own book here where, where he wrote in his book on the Jews and their lies. And, and um, look, the, the theme for the next Church and State Summit is going to be Reformation. Um, and, and I want to unpack that word for people. What Josh means, why Reformation is a good thing, is, is it something we should always be doing? And that is returning to correct doctrine. Yeah. Returning to back to orthodoxy. Back to orthodoxy is is where we should be. Mm. Um, and sometimes you need to go back further. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and as much good, and and I mean they did amazing work. All the all the reformers did amazing work, but but they they did not touch. They it was a forty foot barge pole between them and eschatology. They they maintained that that replacement theology, the millennial reign through the church fulfillment theology. They they didn't touch any of that, and and there was already deep seated anti semitism in their theology at that time. And let me give you an example. So Martin Luther, and this is this is pretty well documented in his book on the Jews and their lies. He says, set fire to their synagogues or schools. Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. Jewish prayer books and the Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught should be taken from them. Uh, their rabbis should be forbidden, forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. And, you know, it goes on and goes on. You get the picture, and and one thing I love about the Bible and Christian history in general is that we don't hide when we got it wrong. Like the Bible doesn't hide when King David got it wrong. The Bible doesn't hide when Moses got it wrong. Mm. Um, it, it's it's not this, Peter. It, when the Bible doesn't hide when Peter puts his foot in his mouth and just gets it wrong. Mm. Um, it's a warts and all kind of book. And we should be like that in church history. It's like Martin Luther was a legend, absolute hero of the faith, but he got this wrong. Yeah. He, he had, he had anti-Semitism in his theology as a result of replacement theology, and we need to correct that. Yeah. Um, as much as we love King David, he got it wrong with Bathsheba. And we should be able to point both out while still loving uh, King David. Likewise, with, our, with, our, with the legends of the faith that have gone before us, we should be able to point out, hey guys, we got that wrong, and replacement theology is a primary area that we got it wrong. So I noticed Martin Luther had some problems with the Talmud. Um, is that something every Christian should be worried about or is criticising the, the Talmud um, anti-Semitism? Look, we need to place it where it needs to be positioned and it's a commentary and it's not Holy Scripture. It's not, it's not part of the canon. Um, and so there is, is there error in it? Uh, yeah, there will be, absolutely. Um, but that's, that doesn't mean that it's all wrong either. Um, just like any commentary you can pick up um, on the scripture, there'll be things that are 100% bang on, and there'll be other commentaries, that you, parts of a commentary. It was like, man, you got you got that wrong. Mm. And so, um, you know, there is there's a lot of tradition, um, and you know, there's a lot of merging of culture, and and um, and you know, they started out with with a lot less commandments than what the rabbis added on. As well, mm. just to give you an example, just in Jesus's day, just in Jesus' day. So, so religion and tradition mm. has a way of of often putting a burden, and sometimes commentary and interpretation of God's scripture can do that as well, if we're not careful. Um, and that that could be a modern day mistake too. And that's not even isolated to your more traditional faiths. There could be Pentecostal, these new upstart uh, denomination. There could be traditions and religious outworkings of our faith expression. That could actually be more of a burden to people than 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 bringing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and without getting into the details here and now, not the place or time. Mm. Um, I think you and I have both identified uh, creeping syncretism in absolutely in most of the good denominations in Australia. Yeah. Uh, which Hence the need for reformation. Reformation. Always, always a need for reformation. Yeah. It's just a constant need. A syncretism is uh, the the blending of true religion with false religion uh, for people wanting that word. Yeah. Um, okay, so anti-Semitism in church history, replacement theology. Uh, what are the best arguments for replacement theology and why do you disagree with them and not find them to hold water? Yeah, I, I, think, there's, I think there's a lot of good thinking that's actually done 
around um, replenishment theology and the understanding that now the church has been grafted uh, into the vine. And here's where they do have it right. There is only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Amen. You're either in Christ or you're not. Yep. And when Paul says, you know, Jew or Gentile, we're now one in Christ. We're a new man. We're, we're no longer Jewish. We're no longer uh, Gentile. Um, it'd be like me. Well, I'm an Aussie, but actually, no, I'm a Christian. However, it is slightly different for the Jew insofar as this, and Paul outlines this in Romans 11, he's, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm still of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm, I'm still Jewish, I might be in Christ, but that's still my unique identity insofar as um, God does have a unique position for Israel. He's made a unique covenant with them. Let's keep examining their arguments, best arguments for and why they don't hold water. So where they... Um, where, where they are on solid ground is so far as that now the expression of their faith is spiritual alone, has no national identity, which is why they, hence they, you know, um, this this has an extreme outworking insofar as saying that there is no Jew today, like that the Jews in Israel aren't even biblical Jews. There's no such thing as national Israel, um, that it's been done away with. Um, that is one of the more preposterous things I have seen on on the internet, um, yeah. you know, I, I made. I said this yesterday. I said I know reason is where uh, Facebook is where reason goes to die, but even for Facebook, that's just preposterous. Yeah, that the modern day Jew isn't Jewish. Um, however, um, there there is an element of truth in their in their outcome of their thinking that that really conversion to Jesus Christ is an expression of spiritual Israel insofar as that just as like there is a a heavenly Jerusalem which is our citizenship mm. so too we have also become the fulfillment of spiritual Israel there, there's there's an element of truth that something that a lot of Christians often miss when, when they're getting into the the weeds on these debates is that two things can be true at once absolutely and are frequently so in scripture frequently so yeah, you, you, you have to be comfortable with the answer of both in theology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the most e glaring example, is God one or is he three? Yeah. Both. Yeah. You know, is it law or is it grace? Both. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the answer's yeah, the answer's both, the answer's yes. So, um, and, and, and this is, ha have we attained the spiritual promises to Israel? Yes. Uh, is there still an outworking of the prophecies and promises that God made to national Israel? Yes. And both of those are, in my opinion, and the way I read scripture, um, I, I believe both of those are true. And ultimately, it does come down to probably that last point I just made is how do you read scripture? What's your, the technical term would be exegesis or your hermeneutic. What's your hermeneutic, which is hermeneutic means the science of interpretation. What's the science of interpretation you're implementing? The methodology. The methodology. The methodology that we would implement in our faith tradition mm. um, would be we would employ what's called a historical grammatical hermeneutic, which in simple terms means what did the grammar and the original audience um, glean from the text according to the grammar and, and the original meaning of those words. Mm. So whatever it meant to them has not lost or changed its truth over the last 2,000 years, it would mean the same to me. Yep. That's not excluding the fact that it could have spiritual or prophetic implications and layers of truth to it, but the mm. historical grammatical interpretation is our primary hermeneutic. 
However, people who would probably be from a different faith tradition, which are more synonymous with um, replacement or replenishment theology, would probably employ more of an allegorical hermeneutic where there are um, more symbols, meanings, and layers of metaphor that are its primary um, definition, not deeper layers. Whereas for us, um, in a literal um, grammatical hermeneutic, the, the symbolism, the metaphor it is, is certainly allowed. It's just used to also reinforce that first layer of truth. Yeah. So where aren't uh, replacement theology advocates on strong ground? I think um, I think once 1948 happened, um, premillennialism became a little bit more popular. In 1947, uh, you know, replacement theology was still going strong because, like I said, even from Ezekiel's day, Israel pretty much wasn't a nation, mm. not not in not in any in any sense. And certainly in Jesus' day, when he's when he's talking about the end times, you know, they were under occupation of Roman rule at the time, and they they really didn't um, have their own. Um, national identity, um, certainly not in the way that they have it today. So uh, let me let me play devil's advocate quite literally. Um, how is a 1948 interpretation of those prophecies not exactly the criticism levied against the early church fathers of reinterpreting scripture through our experience? So where it was not popular in 1947, all of a sudden there's a state of Israel. Well, now we can interpret the scriptures better. How is that not us interpreting scripture through uh, experience? Well, pre-millennialism has been a constant over 2,000 years. It's what in, I would put forward the argument. That's what the disciples taught. Um, it's what the disciples of the disciples taught, like Polycarp, um, even the, um, the early church fathers. It, 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 it's certainly started to diverge, like Polycarp I said before. Polycarp was discipled by John. Yeah, correct. So the disciple of John uh, certainly held to that. Um, Tertullian was certainly premillennialist. A lot of these guys, and, and even Irenaeus, who I talked about before, he was he was a premillennialist, even though he started to go down the uh, replenishment theology route. Um, but it was always it's always been we've been constant. It's just that for the last you know fifteen hundred years of church history, strongly, and and probably seventeen hundred years, um, it it has taken a divergent course to swing out to our millennialism and which means which means there is no millennial reign that, that there's no literal rule and reign of king jesus on there planet is no earth. second coming there's there's a second coming but it's a coming of heaven to earth so we step straight into eternity but not jesus literally ruling here no which no. is no second coming which uh, no they still do believe in the second coming of physical jesus as the angels not 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 of, not of well so when the angels came to the apostles, as they watched Jesus go up yeah. into the air, they said to them, he'll yeah. be coming back exactly like you saw him leave. Correct. So our millennialists say to that? Um, when he comes, he's bringing heaven and, the, and we'll just step into heaven with him when it, come, when it gets here, essentially. It's like we go from this life and we step into eternity. Whereas, so in other words, our, as in our millennialists, no, yep. no millennium. Yep. Whereas for them, the millennium is expressed through the authority of the church here on. So Christ's authority, Christ's rule and reign is expressed through the church. And thousand years is just a, a round figure to say a long time. Right. Uh, whereas a pre-millennialist um, would say, no, it's, it's a literal number. Mm. That Jesus will literally and physically 
live, rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years and for that time period. As they saw him disappear. As they saw him disappear. So there's a physical element to it, which, you know, there's a physical... Well, again, this is what you said before about historical grammatical uh, hermeneutic versus allegorical hermeneutic. Mm. Were the angels speaking allegorically or were they speaking literally? Right. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I don't think the disciples who were there and heard that message thought or communicated that that wasn't literal. Yeah, correct. And and I, I would put forward that a lot of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled literally. And so I don't see that trend. All of them were. Discontinuing. Mm. Um, I've even got a list here, like um, he was born of a woman. That was that was literally fulfilled, not, not metaphorically. He was a descendant of Abraham. That's another prophecy. Um, that was, that's literal. That's not metaphorical or allegorical. He was of the tribe of Judah. Uh, he was of the house of David. He was born of a virgin. He was called Emmanuel. He was a forerunner. He was in Bethlehem. These are all literal fulfillments. Uh, he was worshipped by wise men. He went to Egypt for a season. Birthplace was where infants were slaughtered. Th these are all fulfillments of prophecy, not allegorical, but, but physically. So for my exegesis... Some of them broad, general and easy to fulfil, Yeah, like born of a woman. Uh, but some of them so obscure and semantically specific um, that the the probability of all of them being literally fulfilled would have lent itself to a, a cynic preferring an allegorical interpretation. Correct, yeah. And yet they were literally fulfilled to literally the fulfilled. detail to yeah. every last one. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, literally. Um, and so we, we, we would then read the future fulfilment of other prophecies surrounding national Israel, a Messiah living, ruling and reigning in Jerusalem over a, over a designated land grant that was given by God to Abraham through the Davidic line to Messiah to, to uh, have a, a kingdom and a government which is ever increasing, does not end. Um, we would say no, that also is going to be filled physically. And so essentially, and I'm with you on this, essentially what we're saying is we're not switching methodology. We're not. The way we interpreted the first coming prophecies is the way we interpret the second coming prophecies. That's where I feel we, uh, we're on strong ground in exegesis is that we don't switch and, and change how we interpret the Bible. Now, that's not to say there's not different genres of the Bible. Like obviously of Psalms, history, Gospels, history. Allegory. I said history twice, but uh, prophetic. Um, but and, and Song of Songs is a book all of allegory. Sure. Yeah. And and, and we we allow for that, but we also just say there's also a, a historical grammatical meaning to that which doesn't change. Yeah. And so if Israel um, was looking for a a political military leader that's coming to live, rule, and reign and free them from all their occupiers, then yes, that's spiritual certainly. And Jesus has delivered us from from sin, sickness, disease. But he also will come back as so, a physical military leader as well. Yeah, I, amen. So the weak ground that they're on, uh, so the strong ground they're on is how the, the same scriptures we're looking at apply to the church, mm. to modern believers in Jesus outside the nation of Israel. The weak ground that you're saying they're on is that they're looking at the same scriptures and dismissing all literal applications of them and only applying allegorical. Yeah, correct. Back, back to my point, uh, up until from basically 70 AD, when Israel, you know, were basically dispersed right throughout the nations. And then even more so when, when Hadrian in 135 basically, you know, quelled that last little rebellion of the remaining Jews in Jerusalem. And Roman just, general? Yeah, and he, um, and he, he actually 
you know, renames the whole thing Palestine after their traditional Philistia, uh, Philistine uh, yeah. enemies, right? Yeah. And there'll there'll be Jews today still um, with Palestinian birth certificates, mm. just because um, the the term Palestinian is is geographical more than it is. Um, a bloodline. It, it's not a nation like Palestine. It's never been a nation of Correct. people. It's been a geography. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, a, a religious Jew point out to me yesterday that um, there's never been a conflict with Palestine no. in world history. No. no one has ever gone to war with Palestinians because there is no nation of Palestine no. and there never has been. Never has been. As a matter of fact, if you look at the original... In the most fought over piece of real estate right. in world history, there's never been a conflict with no. the nation of Palestine. No. And and if there was, then they would also be trying to get back the land of that's, that belongs to them from that, that Hadrian originally dictated in Egypt, Jordan, Syria. But nobody wants those nations to give back their land to the Palestinian people. It's only the... Because of prejudice. Because of prejudice. So mm. um, so since then, Israel, who has been a nation and does have the, the right to claim the indigenous people of that land, um, a lot of these prophecies just had really no sense unless Israel was a nation. So hence 1947, our millennialism was, was the way to go. That doesn't mean that pre-millennialism wasn't around. It's been constant over 2,000 years. Yeah, yeah. It's just it looked like the less likely outcome. Then Israel right. became a nation in a day on May 14th, 1948. And two things happened. Post-millennialism... All the pre-millennialists <laughs> went, see? <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. And a lot of uh, a lot of people who were sceptics, cynics or otherwise uh, interpreting prophecy went, hmm, maybe you have a point. <laughs> well, not as much as I'd like as a pre-millennialist. Uh, they're, they're still staunch um, and, and great, once again, great friends of mine and we, uh, we and joke likewise, around. And great and, friends of mine. Love you all. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and and people I respect, great theological thinkers as well. Yeah, I, that's I think, right. I think no less of them. Uh, we, we, we diverge on our interpretation here, but uh, but let, let me just give you a couple of examples. Like, let me just talk about the logic of this. So. Um, in regards to Bible prophecy that supports Israel, Antichrist will make a seven-year covenant with Israel, Daniel 9.27. Now, if Israel's not a nation, um, that prophecy can't come to fruition. So either you've got two options here, allegorize it or say it's already happened. And there's just no um, evidence that it's already happened. So the, really the only other way is to allegorize it into some sort of spiritual meaning. Uh, Antichrist will invade Israel and desecrate the temple. Now, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 24. Mm. This is a prophecy that even Jesus made. So now you got to you got to say, well, was Jesus wrong? Um, because if the because even think about what we talked about before, some people are saying that the people in Israel now are not real Jews. You can stream the second part of this interview right now on DavePello.com. Thanks to the Good Source and Church and State Senders for making this ongoing ministry possible. Subscribe to updates at DavePello.com. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode on The Church and State Show. God bless you and Australia. Shalom, shalom, Jerusalem. Well, I, I grew up in Sydney and I went to a uniting Presbyterian girls' school and I didn't go to Jewish schools. Um, but in saying that, I was teased with my whole life. My whole life being Jewish, my, my twin sister and I and my older sister were always teased. Yeah, but everybody got teased. They were teased for being wogs, they were teased for having a big nose, they were teased for having immigrant parents. Oh. Was it the same? 
Oh, it was teased, but even just recently, I have two girls, they're now 35 and 36, and they went to Stuart Home, which is a Catholic school in the city here. And they were boarders and they mixed with the Morris boys, and our house got egged one night. And this is 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and uh, my niece at the time was in year 10, and I said, we got egged last night. She said, yeah, the Morris boys did it because they said we killed Jesus. And I said, I think they really need to educate themselves. But that came from mm. their parents and they were country yep. boys that were unaware. But to be egged in the, 2019, in the 2020 time, it was a bit scary. And we were like, what's happening? But I always grew up with anti-Semitism and my family did. You know, we were used to it and I, we sh you shouldn't be used to it. It shouldn't be acceptable. And now, the times that we're in, what's happening in mm. Israel, anti-Semitism is just, it's gone up, was it 466% mm. I was reading the other day? And I, I just, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and she always said, they'll come back for us. They'll come back for us. You're too thin, Gabby. You'll never survive. You need a bit of fat. Oh, and I'm like, darling. Nana, it's never going to happen again. And I'm quite relieved she's gone. Mm. We're here at the Queensland Holocaust Museum and you give regular presentations to senior high school students. Uh, what's contained uh, in those presentations? What do students learn from you? Well, basically I've been asked to uh, just give the story of, well, to give my story, that is uh, what my family uh, experiences during the Second World War uh, and um, then the aftermath of the war which is emigration to Australia and uh, life in Australia. Um, the importance of that I, I think uh, it's it makes it real if people have the opportunity to see somebody who really was there. Now I know I was only a child, but I do have memories and actually I was there even if I was a child. And uh, it makes it real. Uh, you know what people like to say is never again. It will happen again. Uh, and we have to guard against that. And uh, I think education like this is a very good weapon, a very important weapon to uh, against having it happen again. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynic, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.